In today's episode, we continue in our study of Esther with Esther chapter 9, verse 20, through the end of the book, 10, verse 3. As we come to the end of the book of Esther, we find Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai establish a day of feasting and rejoicing in celebration of the Jews' deliverance from Haman's plot to destroy them. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Thursday, February 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help ministries succeed by spreading the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. They also have mission speakers that will come and speak to your congregation. So check them out at lhfmissions.org. Joining the conversation this morning is my guest, the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Good morning, Pastor Eddy. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Thank you for having me back. Well, I'm always excited to have you on. Uh, I hope that things have been going well for you up there in the, uh, where are you out in uh where are you? I just right said it. Border, oh, Wisconsin. We're right on the border. We're right, well, it's it's confusing because we're right on the border with Illinois. Our congregation's only about a mile and a half from the Illinois border. There's a South Beloit, Illinois, and a Beloit, Wisconsin, so it, it, it can be a little confusing. Well, it's equally confusing for me because every time I think of you, I think of you back in the New England district where yes. we served Oh, together. yes. The good old days in New England. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, have you uh, on the show as always there's you know a little bit to dig into today it's going to be our final time together our final chapter on the book of esther we get to learn about the feast of of purim purim how do you say it i've seen it and i've heard it pronounced both ways <laughs> uh, well, hebrew tends to emphasize the second syllable sure. you know and it's a, is it shale or shaol you know, Dr. Reed Lessing would tell you Sha'ol. So he, he tended to emphasize the second syllable as a lot of Hebrew speakers do. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out which one we're going to land on as we go through the text. But uh, let's start off our time in prayer, and I'd like to invite you to do that. Let us pray. Dear Lord, it is only from your word that we know who you are and the plan for saving humankind. It is your word, when heard, that creates faith in the heart and renews it. It is the best way to know your will. So today, bless our study of your scriptures, that they may bring stronger trust in you and a closer walk, so others can see your light shining in us and give the glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, before we dive into our last time together with Esther, which has been just an amazing book, uh, full of, uh, well, I guess morbid humor a little bit. It's a little dark humor, but it's it's got a lot of irony and suspense. It is a true story, naturally, told in a way that is just very much engaging to anyone. If if you're interested in reading, um, you know, a story about palace intrigue and pride and fall, but as we come in here to the end, uh, would you like to catch us up just a little bit on, on what's been going on so we can set the stage for those who are finishing out the book with us today? Well, I don't want to consider myself an expert in the book, okay? Uh, but the timeline in history is uh, uh, it's about 38 years since the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem. 
And we are looking at 33 years before the Jerusalem walls are rebuilt. So this historic event happens in between it. It happens in Susa, the southwest tip of Iran today near the Persian Gulf. That was uh, the capital, if not one of their capitals, in the Persian Empire, uh, which was an empire that lasted about 200 years. And if you remember in the book of Daniel, Cyrus is the king that defeated the Babylonians, and he still worked underneath them. So there's those connections that happened about a century before this. So we have those historical events that kind of tie in with this one. And so this is a book where God is not mentioned uh, uh, by name, but he's implied and he's hidden. And you see him working, even though his name's not mentioned. And uh, But here we see the sovereign rule of God is very prominent here. Uh, the hidden nature of his power working through the the good characters, the characters of faith here, Mordecai and Esther, as uh, they as they heed to God's will in saving God's chosen people. You're right about you know Esther is famously known for being you know a book that doesn't mention God explicitly, but as you said, he's behind the scenes. If anything that we've learned over the past uh, several uh, days, going through it, the past you know ten or eleven episodes, has been that just like in our lives today, God is at work. He's providentially at work. He holds together all things, even if he's not, as I've said before, shaking the thresholds or coming down in pillars of cloud and fire. We know that God is is with us. And so, yeah, it's a great, great summary. Uh, it sounds like you're more of an expert than you will let on, but you've done a good job catching us up. And so we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 9 with verse 20. Uh, the Jews have defended themselves just as they were able to do after Haman's plot was discovered. And Haman was very ironically hung on his own gallows. Um, we now have verse 20, and I'm going to read, oh, let's see here. Let me read through uh, just, just the first few verses to get us started. So verse 20 through verse 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts for the poor. We'll stop there. We haven't been given the name yet, but these days will be called Purim or Purim, um, or Purim, however we want to say it. Uh, these are this is a festival that's still widely celebrated by Jews today. Isn't that correct, Pastor? It is, and it is not prescribed in the Book of Moses. This is a later one, and quite frankly, that's really the only prescriptive language in here for God's chosen people is to honor this day as. Um, God liberating his people once again. I mean, look at the pattern in Scripture. God liberated his people from Egyptian slavery, from uh, Babylonian slavery, and now from the hand of people who would do them harm under the Persian Empire, which had a much more liberal view of slavery, okay? And they were allowed to exist and work 
um, and uh, were productive for the Persian Empire. Uh, if you remember, that was one of Esther's rationales, uh, wisdom moments, if you will, where she's convincing the king, hey, why are you going to wipe out people that are very productive uh, for, for our empire? Besides the fact that she admitted to him, I'm one of the people that you want to kill. And I think this was uh, God's way of, of letting cooler heads prevail under this. So anyway. Well, and Purim or Purim, it's it's one it's the only festival observed during the last five months of the Hebrew calendar, except for Hanukkah. But at this point, Hanukkah has not been instituted yet, so we don't even have a Hanukkah. So Christians generally don't celebrate these this feast, these days of feasting. Uh, why would you think so? I mean, you know, I've never really heard of this until we start. Getting into the Old Testament, as a Christian growing up, you never really hear anything about this unless you are friends with a lot of Jewish people, which I wasn't. I didn't I was didn't have a lot of Jewish people or Jewish communities around me where I grew up. So it wasn't until much later in my life that I even heard about some of these feasts. Why don't they I mean, I'm just asking your opinion, maybe you don't know, but why don't they kind of find their way into the Christian calendar? I think the first reason is you don't find them in the New Testament. You find the Passover in the New Testament, okay, that ties to Holy Communion, all right? For example, uh, you even have Jesus in the book of John and walking in Solomon's colonnade, observing Hanukkah, all right? But you don't see this particular festival where Jesus is going to the festival, uh, or Paul is encouraging Christians to uh, remember that. Uh, But it doesn't mean that aspects of Purim isn't something that we should heed to. We should heed to the fact that we celebrate. And when we celebrate, we don't celebrate for selfish reasons. We celebrate to be a witness to other people. So I think it's fantastic that you're celebrating your people being liberated, defending against your enemies. And while you're at it, hey, we're going to feed the poor. We're going to help people. And isn't that kind of an image of heaven? Isn't that living heaven in your heart to be able to show your faith uh, where it could be all about, hey, look at us, we are victorious, and yet not use that opportunity to reach out to other people? Yeah, I really love that aspect of it. You know, it's feasting and gladness, but also for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And it makes sense, you know, I mean, if we don't see it in the New Testament, it doesn't point directly or to the salvation we receive through Christ, although we definitely make those connections. Um, I, yeah, I guess it just doesn't find its way onto the church calendar. And I would also suppose that, you know, in this uniquely Jewish context, the plot against the Jews was less about a plot against God's people, as we see elsewhere, but really a plot against just the the ethnic connection that this guy made, this guy Haman made to, uh, to uh, Mordecai's people. So really, it wasn't even an attack on God and his people in this particular instance, so much as it was just this sociopathic ruler or, or you know, second-in-command guy who wanted to you know, commit genocide against the people. Ah, but, God, but what got go the ball rolling here? We look back at what got this whole series of events happening, and that is when Mordecai would not bow— Right. To the king. And you'll have biblical scholars that will, when I did research on this, that will will not be in agreement. I personally think that Mordecai wouldn't bow to the king because that would be a well, way. Well, to Haman. Uh, 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 
uh, no, Mordecai wouldn't bow to the king. Right. He wouldn't uh, bow to Haman. Haman wanted wouldn't bow to Haman, right. the king, because to do that would be idol worship. Yeah. So, you know, the king, uh, King Ahasuerus, which is, <laughs> sounds like you're about to sneeze, the king Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he puts Haman as, uh, in charge of all the officials. And then, then there's a decree that goes out that says every time you see Haman, or at least this first time, you have to bow down to him. And then Mordecai doesn't refuses to bow down. And you're right. There are some scholars who say, well, on the one hand, he, he refuses to bow down because this would be uh, idol worship or worshiping. Although we see elsewhere in Scripture, I tend to uh, not agree with that. I tend to be a little bit on the opposite side of you. I, there are other sections in Scripture where there the Jews can certainly honor their kings in, in prostrate positions without it being um, worship. Um, but at the same time, does he have a problem with Haman as a person, or is he doing this on religious grounds? You know, I don't think we know. I've even seen some scholars, including Jewish ones, say that uh, Mordecai was a little bit in the wrong. He was acting pridefully, too. Uh, by not showing deference to this guy, although he certainly Haman turns out to be a guy you don't want to show deference to because he's just not a good guy. And so before I think he knew something was up because he made an extra effort to tell Esther, don't reveal your ethnicity. I think that that maybe we can surmise from the text that there was anti-Semitism already there. And maybe he sensed it from this guy, Haman. And that might have been the reason why he also didn't bow down to him. But the point is that that, that event is what, it's what triggered all these other events that came after that. And it's interesting because the, the day of Purim, which is what a Persian word for lots, mm -hmm. okay? And you cast lots in order to figure out uh, divine knowledge. And what am I going to do? What does God want me to do? So I cast lots, and from that, this is what God wants me to do. So I see this as kind of a hidden God contest, because uh, uh, at this time, based on what I was able to find out, uh, is it Sarasitarianism is the is the term, where they worshipped Ahura Mazda, the one God, and this type of thinking had transcended from multiple gods that they had worshipped uh, before the Persian Empire came. But over time, uh, they were convinced, well, okay, there is one God there. That might have been one of the reasons why King Cyrus was tolerant to let the Jews go back and worship their one God. So here's what I propose as a hypothesis. Okay. You've got Haman, is he's casting his lots, hoping that this one God, uh, Ahura uh, Mazda, you know, we're going to see his divine will. And yet the one true God, Yahweh, is like, yeah, huh, we're, we're going to reveal my uh, divine plan. All right. But it's not going to be the plan that you think it is. Oh, sure. It's Absolutely. I mean, we, we definitely see a battle of who's the one true God. It gives us a little reminiscent of what was going on in Egypt, right, where you have the Egyptians appealing to their gods. And then the one true God is getting glory over the Egyptians. Um, we spent quite a bit of time in that text on even this program recently. Also a great text where we see God exercising his power and authority as the one true God. And so I would definitely uh, buy into the idea that, you know, you have the one God um, of the like the Zoroastrians and then they are are pitting it against the gods of the Hebrews. But even though in a text where God is not even explicitly mentioned, um, 
as we've said before, you can definitely see God working behind the scenes. And so Haman is identified as uh, an Agagite, um, probably just a derogatory title connecting him to the people who were enemies, uh, lifelong enemies of the Jews. But Does that Haman, go back to King Saul? Didn't King Saul defeat? Uh, right, but uh, you know. but I but I agree with scholars who say that Haman is probably not an Agagite. He's probably just being identified that way in like a derogatory sense because he then becomes sort of an enemy of the Jews. Um, he gets mad at Mordecai and sets out to punish him before he knows that he's a Jew. And it's only later that they reveal to him that he's a Jew that he says, okay, fine, we'll kill all the Jews then. Um, so even like Esther, when when Mordecai tells her to hide her Jewishness, that's before Haman even becomes prime minister um, but when she's being sent in. So I would agree that there's some sort of they don't like the Jews. Uh, there might be some issues with foreigners being in line to marry the king. Um, I think Haman really is is less about these lifelong feuds or his people being against the Jewish people. And I think Haman's just shown to be a pitiful but powerful a uh, pathetic, psychopathic human being. and uh, But we see here that God is at work, and, and it really gives a message to us that we see God at work even when it's not explicit. And and so Haman in, gets his comeuppance. He gets hanged on the same uh, 75, 80-foot spike that he was going to hang uh, 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 Mordecai on. Mordecai ends up getting the ring. Mordecai ends up getting in charge. Um, now he's in the position of Haman. <clears throat> Pardon me. And so now they're, yeah, they're going to celebrate with this feast. But I do. I just I love this idea that the feast is not only just for them to kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, um, put it in the faces of their enemies, but rather it's one that's going to benefit the people and gifts to the poor. Um, would you like me to read a little bit more to add to the conversation? Because we could add Please. verses yeah, 23 through 28. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim or Purim after the term pure or pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all those who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So we get a little summary of what had happened in the previous chapters. I guess we didn't need to catch up. We could have just read this. But we get that explanation that you've given us about the pure that is to cast lots, um, and now they're talking about casting their lot with the Lord, which you also pointed out. Um, one thing I notice here, though, brother, is that they obligated themselves. This is not a thus saith the Lord. An act of worship, an act of faith toward God, you could view it that way. Um, 
And that's one of the things that I find ironic about this book. It's as though you have sentences that aren't completed. And so here you're, you're celebrating this. Are you just doing it for you? Are you doing it because God's hand was there? Uh, it was uh, just like um, when they fasted. Well, when do you fast and you don't pray? You know, unless you're going in for a medical appointment, which was not something common in their day, you know, why would you fast and then not pray? So this is the hiddenness of God here. It's almost like you got three quarters of the sentence and they left off the other quarter that included a direct mention of God. It really does feel intentional because we, you, you point out a very good example, which had um, stuck in my brain also. And that is she orders way back, you know, if you guys remember several episodes ago, she, uh, as she's trying to figure out how she's going to approach the king and Haman and tell the king about Haman, she orders the Jews through her uh, stepfather slash cousin Mordecai to have them all fast for three days. And so, yeah, she, she orders them to fast, but why would you fast without praying? And now we see here a celebration, and you're right, the other shoe hasn't dropped. It's almost as if you would know. You would know what is meant by these things. The, the intended audience wouldn't have to have it spelled out for them. Pastor, the biggest teaching in this book that I think can be used as a witness to uh, weaker believers or non-believers is God most often works through ordinary means. Mm -hmm. I think we have this idea in America today that we're so used to our blessings that we think we have control over them. And we and the only time that we're really looking for God is in the extraordinary. You know, so if somebody is, has cancer we're, and the odds are against them, then that's when we look to God, okay? But we don't see God working through the doctors, the nurses, that God was the one who provided the knowledge in order for us to make our technological advancements, in order to heat our homes, in, in order to fuel our cars, in order to, uh, for you and I, to have a, a radio broadcast. And we're 150 years ago, this was unheard of. And so God is working through ordinary means. He's working through the beauty of Esther to be attracted uh, by the king. He's uh, working through Mordecai, hearing of the assassination attempt on the king. Uh, he's working through the king, not sleeping that night, and gets up and finds out that Mordecai should be honored, a, a turning point, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, in Haman, Haman having power over the situation where God says, no, 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 I've got power through Mordecai over over it. God working through power structures. Even when uh, uh, the king said, whoa, um, this is terrible. I don't want to kill uh, the Jewish people, but then realized he couldn't reverse his own edict. Something very consistent with even Daniel in the lion's den, where the king could not go back on his word. Okay, how God even worked through that uh, dilemma in order to bring victory to his chosen people. So you see the hand of God working through ordinary means. And if we can believe that God works through our lives each and every day, think about how that strengthens our faith. Think about how quickly we go to him in prayer because we see his hand working through everything good in our lives, not just through the spectacular or extraordinary. 
Very excellent point. I mean, it reminds me, and I think I've mentioned this before, but it reminds me of the unbelievers who all want, you know, they seek signs and wisdom. They want proof. They want to see God do something miraculous. And yet Esther, as a book, illustrates to us how God is, is as you said, hidden. He's, he's working behind the scenes. And it reminds me of Jesus and the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So, you know, oh, please, you know, if, if a, a, someone should rise from the dead, then my brothers will believe. And Jesus says, very prophetically, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they still won't believe. They have uh, the, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And, and that's, that's the issue here. People who demand these signs, they demand God prove himself to them through whatever means they've determined um, is, is not the way you approach the Lord. Instead, we see in Esther um, uh, people exercising their faith within the confines of the reality in which they live, and it's not always pillars of cloud and pillars of fire. Sometimes it's God making a, a nervous queen just a little bit more nervous to stave off her decision for a day to make the timing right. Or, you know, putting, uh, allowing, uh, you know, Mordecai to experience this sociopath so that, you know, he's in a position to notify the queen who then, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all the pieces fall in. And too often, the people of this world will say, well, what coincidence, what serendipity, um, how fortunate, um, or, or karma, or uh, what is it? Oh, fate. See, that's fate where their God on. is. See, exactly. we have too many Americans that believe their God is in luck and in chance. Uh, um, you, you know, that's where they're putting their faith. You know, I hear people say, well, I hope my lucky stars align. And, and I, I loathe when people say good luck. I mean, because I just think it's something people say without thinking about it. I said, I'll do something better. I'll pray for you. You know, or if they say good luck to me, I'd ask you to do something more. Pray for me. Because there is no luck in prayer. It is seeking God's will. And and so oftentimes we, we have too many people that pray to the God of randomness or chance or luck when you have the certainty of Christ and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Agreed. Very much so. Because people are, are trying to attribute basically the actions of God to things like luck or fates, um, and they use language which is riddled with theological meaning that they don't even understand, they're missing out on two opportunities. One, to recognize God working in their midst, and two, the opportunity to, as you said, spread, spread the gospel, to share others, to point them to God who really is the one acting sometimes behind the scenes. Folks, I want you to keep that in your hearts as you take as we take this break. Think about it. See what you think. Um, if you have any questions, you can send me an email. We'll talk about it. Otherwise, we'll be right back, folks, in just a few minutes. Pastor Eddie and I will finish out chapter 9 and chapter 10. We'll be, see you on the other side. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are, there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. As I said before the break, if you have any comments or questions about today's show or you just want to say hello, you can direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also uh, find me on Facebook. Send me a message there. Either way, thank you so much for listening and especially for telling others about Thy Strong Word. Tell them that they can listen on the air or online. They can also listen on demand at kfuo.org forward slash Thy Strong Word through their favorite podcasting app, or even through the KFUO app that you can find in your app store. So many ways to connect more deeply with God's Word through KFUO Radio. Well, Pastor Eddie, before the break, we uh, you know, we were talking about this idea of luck and providence, which is certainly a, a major aspect of the book of Esther. And we found ourselves here at the end of chapter 9. The Feast of Purim is being inaugurated. Um, they have established this. They're casting lots, but this time, it's not to crush and destroy the Jews, but to celebrate their deliverance from this evil plot. The celebration involves giving to the poor and feeding the poor. and it, uh, But it says they obligated themselves to do this. So the people are not really receiving a thus saith the Lord, but rather they've decided within their hearts that this is how they're not only going to celebrate their deliverance, but pass down the commemoration of these days, as the text says, to their descendants. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't continue it is because it isn't. It doesn't have that "thus saith the Lord" behind it. But I feel like it might speak to other traditions that we do pass down. That there's, you know, we always get in these arguments over man-made tradition versus "thus saith the Lord." Not all man-made traditions are bad, and I think this is an example. Is there a "thus saith the Lord" for celebrating Christmas? Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, these feast days of the church here? No, we do it as an expression of our faith. We, we wisely use these festivals to point out various aspects of God loving us, from God finally taking on flesh, born through a Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, to God being recognized, by the way, uh, by the Magi who are involved in this narrative as well, uh, and that their role in recognizing Jesus as the king of the world. Then you have, why wouldn't we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead? Does God have to command us to celebrate these things, or does the Holy Spirit working through us move us to celebrate these events? And what's true for us would be true also for uh, the people celebrating Purim. And precisely, you know, I do know Christian groups that reject Easter and Christmas and Epiphany and all these other things by saying, well, you know, these things aren't commanded in Scripture. And, and they're not, and there, and there certainly is nothing upon them that says you're not a good Christian if you don't celebrate these things. But I, I just use Purim as an example to say, yeah, this is what it looks like to set up a feast, a commemoration, a celebration that can help us teach others about the mighty acts and works of God. And there you go. And we do that too, as you pointed out, amongst all these other different feast days. But I also find it interesting um, because they can talk about these feasts, they can talk about the deliverance, but they still don't mention God specifically. And I don't want to hang on that point because I think we've addressed it several times. But of all the places you think, 
you know, what is being remembered? What is being um, that should never fall into disuse? What is being commemorated? If it were just that, you know, well, we've had this great battle and won, then it would be more akin to a secular celebration, you know, to remember Pearl Harbor or to remember uh, the the battle uh, of wherever. But but we connect it as a religious holiday. So do Jews today who continue to celebrate it, um, even though God's not mentioned, because as you said before, there are things left unsaid that we we know are going on. It's a declaration of victory. So I think one of the ways that we as Christians can benefit from a book like Esther is you take a descriptive book and you look for how this description of this event of, of courage, of risk, of fasting, of um, working, letting God work through ordinary means. And you look for prescriptive passages to tie it to our uh, faith in Christ. So you could tie Purim to the Easter celebration, where Christ declares victory over sin, death, and the devil. You could see Esther as a Christ-like figure, putting herself at risk for her own people. You could see Mordecai as a Christ-like figure, refusing uh, to bow to this world or doing things to jeopardize his faith. You could see God's justice and Haman and and his death. Uh, you could see the king showing mercy to the Jews and, and that he could have just said after Esther said that, well, my edict has started, um, tough on you guys, uh, it's going to go through anyway. And yet he, he worked through around his own bad edict to make sure that uh, Esther's people were liberated. Um, also, too, the Jews showed grace in the fact that uh, they just wanted to defend themselves. They didn't want the plunder. Uh, they they just said, look, just, just let us be. And um, they could have used it as an opportunity to say, no, now this is our um, revenge. This is our payment for what you put us through. And they didn't do that. So we see aspects of the Christian faith uh, through the actions of uh, the good people in the book of Esther. I'm going to read a couple more verses down to verse 32 because it illustrates some of the things that you just said. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. A couple things that stand out to me, brother, is first, um, we get Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew uh, we see Mordecai the Jew being mentioned as that's the descriptor. It doesn't say Queen Esther the Jew. It says Mordecai the Jew. And I think this is the author's way of, again, not de- delivering, getting plunder, not, you know, trying to kill people just for the sake of revenge, but rather this is this is the way that the author has decided to get glory over even Haman's plot. You know, Mordecai was hated 
um, by Haman. It extended then to the Jews once she found out he was a Jew. And so now we have Mordecai the Jew giving authoritative writings in the place of Haman, which is just, just it's just more salt in the wound for Haman's reputation. You could view it as, <clears throat> if you want to draw this to the cross, is, you know, Satan thought he was going to win. Okay, I don't think he really thought that Jesus was going to be victorious. I think he had enough hubris in him, just like Haman did. And then when the tables turned on Good Friday, I think Satan realized, uh-oh, uh, I'm doomed here. Uh, I've tried to foil this plot. I've tried to throw as much mud at Jesus as possible. But it looks like I'm the one who's going to be hung on the gallows of hell in, in order for Christ to, to be victorious. Well, so in a way, and, Mordecai could be like a Christ-like figure. Sure, sure. And and we also have Esther, though. Why this second letter? You know, Haman—I'm sorry, <laughs> Haman's dead now. Uh, Mordecai has the authority to send the letter. He sent the letter out, but now the queen is adding her imperture to it. She's now sending out a letter from both of them. It confirms it among them. I'm sure we can speculate. It doesn't exactly say, but why do you think Esther felt the need to also— use her office to confirm this. To show that this is um, a blessing of the king as well. I mean, I know he didn't do it himself, but I think that people have to understand that there was there was more going on here than just Mordecai, that this was the blessing of uh, Esther. And it was because of her influence. I mean, without Esther, none of these events would have been victorious for the Jewish people. Do you think Mordecai would have been able to go to the king by himself and make this case? Absolutely not. He needed the attention of Esther. And I don't think people understand. You just can't walk into the king's presence and say, hey, I need a few minutes with you. You have to, you have to, the king has to want to, to have your attention. And because of Esther's beauty and her relationship, the fact is that she she didn't force her way on the king. She says, hey, I'm having a party. Why don't you come and let's celebrate and wisely use that opportunity to get the king's attention? If she wouldn't have gotten the king's attention, none of this victory would have happened. Right. I mean, your point is illustrated even by Queen Esther herself, because way back in the chapter where we discussed this, you know, she was nervous about going before the king because he hadn't called her for 30 days. And she said, if I go before the king without being invited, he could choose. I might to end kill up me. like my predecessor. <laughs> yeah, it's like, don't forget Vashti. Anybody remember <laughs> yeah, this right. lady? Yeah. Uh, but of course, he, as you said, though, he, he, God has given him this attraction to her. She then really shifts her tone and she becomes the queen that she is. Even though, of course, you know she could always end up like Vashti, but 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 Queen Esther's power is exercised by her obedience. She goes through the system. She does things the way the Persians do, and and by doing so, she ends up obviously uh, prevailing. But I'm glad you brought up you know the importance of Esther and why it's named Esther because at the very beginning when we first started this, I said. If, if you don't know the end of the story, you always kind of wonder, why is this book named Esther? Why isn't it named, you know, the foibles of Haman or the success of, uh, of Mordecai the Jew or something like that? Because Queen Esther starts off in a very, very weak position. And by the end of the book, she's in a very powerful position, of course, as is Mordecai. And these things can only happen uh, really through the through the what we would call the providence um, of God. 
And, and of course, that begins to be the message. But yeah, so she sends out this. Now she has now it's not only the so-called prime minister that Mordecai is now you know able to exercise the office of. The queen herself has obligated them. And um, yeah, but then there's fasting and lamenting. So where what's the last fasting and lamenting? What what do we are the lamenting? Is that other feasts or something? I'm not sure where we're getting that language. I think that in order to really appreciate a celebration, you have to review what got you there. Um, the Bible's filled with passages where uh, I think like Jeremiah 31, 13, I will turn your mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness from sorrow. In order for us to really appreciate, say, what Christ did from the cross, we have to mourn our, our sins. We have to realize how broken we are. It's only when we do that that we better appreciate the victory, the Purim, if you will, uh, that Christ offers uh, through his death and resurrection. Uh, for, for Christians, for us not to go through Holy Week services and go from Palm Sunday right to Easter and miss Monday, Thursday, Holy Thursday, and Good Friday services at the very least, we don't appreciate the celebration of Easter as well. And I think it's good that in the in in Purim that they lament all of the things that led up to the victory that eventually happened. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So we now find our way into chapter 10, and we're going to cover the entire chapter today because it is only three verses long. But chapter 10 serves as a, a you know, a postlog. It serves sort of as an epilogue, I guess I should say, where everything's kind of summed up. And again, God is not mentioned. Now, from my research, I found that there is a Greek version, a Greek text of Esther that's out there, and it includes a lot of additions, and it mentions God. It fills in some of the gaps that we find even in the Hebrew version, though the Hebrew version is the basis of our Old Testament. It's the more authoritative one for lots of reasons. Uh, but even here, though, even in these few verses, I think we're going to see these reversals, a summary, a recap of these reversals that really can't be explained just by, by human endeavor. It really points to God even without mentioning his name. I'll read verses 10, 1 through 3. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, because he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." So we see that major reversal. Mordecai the Jew, who's this lowly official who refuses to bow down and honor the sociopathic Haman, now sits in Haman's seat, elevated, second in rank to only to King Ahasuerus, and the, but he's also popular, you know? And, and, and we definitely get the idea that Haman was not popular. And so here we have, he's, he's good. He's good for his people. He's good with the people who aren't even uh, uh, Jews. So we have this greatness of Mordecai that sums up the end of the book, uh, but still plenty to, to look at and talk about. Uh, where are the connections here, brother? Well, 
Okay, so second in command. Who else was second in command among God's chosen people? Joseph was second in Joseph, command. Right, uh, yeah. Daniel, maybe not it wasn't in second in command, but he was one of the three governors that oversaw 120 providences. So in the last um, century, they've gained a few providences here. We're up to 127 now. But uh, it's amazing how uh, God, again, working through ordinary means, rises his people to positions of power in very secular or or non-faith, um, non-believer when, when they're running the show. And it just goes to show that we as Christians, if we allow God to work in our lives, we too can hold positions of integrity uh, where we get to promote peace in positions of earthly power in, in order for the light of Christ to shine through us. And I think a lot of times Christians shy away from that. We, we kind of want to isolate ourselves over in our own community. But God asks us to be in the world. Don't be of the world, but you got to be in the world. And, and so Mordecai is a great example of how God can use a believer and put them in positions of power to do good. And I think that uh, there's a lesson there for us when we look at our vocations in life not just our vocations as mother and father, brother, sister, church member, but the other vocations that may offer us a lot of influence in our culture to take advantage of those, not for our glory, but for God's glory, because that may be a key or a tool for a lot of people saying, oh, well, I guess the Jewish people aren't that bad in the case of Mordecai. For us, oh, well, I've been taught to think that Christians are judgmental and they're Bible thumpers. And here I see this person working on our school board or our city council, or I see them uh, working um, as a CEO, uh, as a sales manager, and they're acting differently than the other people that have held those same positions before them. That's an important point because we live in such a contentious political society. Of course, it really always has been, but it, it seems to be worse today. And you think, well, can Christians really uh, occupy these offices uh, and remain faithful? And we see situations in Bible, especially these second command, second in command folks, you know, where yes, they do. They serve even in pagan governments, right? So you have. Daniel serving um, Nebuchadnezzar as his chief advisor. You have uh, Ahasuerus now, uh, right, raising up Mordecai to serve next to him. Joseph, of course, with the Pharaoh of Egypt. And they remain faithful with God's help. And so, yeah, I think you make a, a wonderful point, and that's certainly something that we should remember. I just thought of Daniel. He served at the end of the Babylonian Empire, and then when the Persians took over, well, I mean— you generally get rid of <laughs> the people that are there. And yet King Cyrus ended up being um, an ally for Daniel and, and his people. I mean, this is the one where he made the edict and Daniel had to go in the lion's den and the king's like all night long worried. I hope Daniel makes it. I hope Daniel makes it. And Daniel does. Uh, that just goes to show you the integrity that Daniel had and the integrity of Mordecai and other biblical figures that serve in these roles. And there's a huge lesson for us as Christians serving in this world today. Um, not to backtrack, but the first verse of chapter 10 uh, feels a little out of place. Uh, it says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. 
and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high Mordecai. So, so I guess you would think that since the book is focused on the events around Mordecai, you know, why mention King Ahasuerus imposing tax on the land and the coastlands of the sea? Maybe you don't know, but I, I don't know. Did you, have you, did you see that when I, well, he, he, in, in, when he first held a feast for all of his officials and servants, it was Esther's feast. He granted a remission of taxes to the providence and gave gifts with royal generosity. So he's, for right. whatever reason, the author is reversing this. So this, if you go back to Esther 2.18, yes. that's when he, rem, he, he granted the tax cut and, you know, and the tax cut's not permanent. <laughs> well, of course so. not. I guess I, you, it, I'm glad you brought that up because I guess I'd always thought that it actually uh, got reinstated pretty quickly. Uh, you know, the tax cut. Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. He's, he's. I think they're just not leaving any loose ends here. King Ahasuerus and put the taxes back on the land. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense. Also, a device to let us understand this is not a fairy tale. Um, right. This is not a legend. You know, and I think that. Uh, God wisely, you know, uh, like in Luke 2, you know, the whole idea of where Christ was born, you know, uh, Caesar Augustus uh, and wanting to enroll people so he could tax them some more. This just establishes the the uh, history narrative that this isn't just some made up event. And to also establish that he mentions here that the full account of all of this is written in the book of the Chronicles. Right. And in fact, it's it's posed as a question. You know, you, you think that I'm not telling the truth? Isn't all these, aren't all these things mentioned in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? No, we don't have access to that, but presumably following this period, they record them in the official records. It reminds me a little bit of the apostles, um, and I think it's the apostle Paul, please correct me if I'm wrong, who, who, who's talking about those who were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and he basically says, you can go ask these guys. Right, they're still around. Right, right, right. I think right. that's a similar thing yeah. here. You know, you can go read about it in the records. Right. It's verified through other sources. It's sad that a lot of those outside sources haven't been preserved to verify this because then what happens and people think, oh, because it's in the Bible and because we can't verify it outside the Bible, it must not happen. <laughs> I would contend the reverse, okay, that the, the Bible is a great first source for historical event. We don't need to have stuff verified outside the Bible to believe that it occurred because it is God's word. It does occur. And that's not just a polit um, not political, pardon me. That's not just a faith or spiritual position that you have there, Pastor Eddie, because the Bible as a record of events is just so well kept and so well attested to more than any other book of ancient literature. Amen to that, brother. So you don't even have to say, well, you know, I you don't even have to be a believer in God to recognize that these things were recorded and passed down accurately. And speaking of wanting to have proof, uh, we've talked about that way back in chapter six, because one of the uh, things that Haman wanted for his what he thought was going to be his own celebration was that he should ride on the king's horse and that the horse should wear a crown. And a lot of critics had said that's ridiculous. Horses don't wear crowns. It's just it's silly. And then in recent years, they've discovered reliefs from this time period with horses wearing headdresses to designate them as the king's horses. And so it just, and this happens all the time where people will not have any faith or trust in the clear testimony of scripture until, of course, it's revealed in some way by archaeological evidence. 
Um, and and the Bible gets proved right time and again. We as Christians don't need those things, but it's it's neat when it happens. It is, and it becomes a good talking point uh, when people try to question the credibility of Scripture. I think it's okay to say, well, they keep finding archaeological evidence. They keep finding this or that. It keeps verifying. You know, God's Word gets keeps getting verified over and over and over. And either that is a turning point for people saying, you know, I need to receive faith in Christ, or it reveals their true intention, and that is, well, that's not my real objection. Here's my real objection. And then when you meet that objection, well, that's not my real objection. This is my real objection, until finally they just have to admit, well, it doesn't matter how much proof you offer me, I'm still not going to believe. And, and that ends up being yeah. the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we just have a couple minutes left in the show. I'd like to give those minutes to you. Just sum up, maybe leave us with a final message before we finish up. I think of Romans 8.28. Uh, that uh, Paul sets up the chapter about suffering does not compare to the glory awaiting us. And I'm thinking of the potential suffering that the Jews must have faced even before this date occurred, and yet how God worked all things, good and bad, for his good, which is our good, which is his will. So Romans 8.28, for we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I think that is a lesson for us to remember that God worked the ultimate good through the ultimate bad of the cross to give us his good eternal life in heaven, a celebration that will make the Purim celebration pale by comparison. And I think that's the one of the biggest prescriptive passages besides God working through ordinary means that we can take away from this book. Amen, brother. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. As always, brother, always enjoy the conversation. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being on next time. Yeah, can't wait to have you on again. And folks, we're at the end of the book of Esther. There's no more. We're done. So that means we get to move to a brand new book. And that book will begin tomorrow, Friday. And we will be covering 1st and 2nd Timothy. Uh, We're also going to cover Titus, too. So that's the next three books that we're covering um, throughout the month of February or through the rest of the month of February. So please join us. The Reverend David Fleming will be leading us through 1st Timothy chapter 1. We're beginning tomorrow. Again, until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.